Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that we could come before you today and hear your word. Lord, we thank you for the rain that that we have received outside. Lord, we need it so badly. And Lord, no less do we need the word, the rain of your word in essence to rain down upon our souls and to water our hearts in essence. Oh God, we we need to hear from you this day and we pray that you would be with us, Lord, not only to hear your word, but we pray for your spirit to work in our hearts, O oh God, to, to receive that word by faith. And Lord, to be um, challenged to, to uh, walk in obedience to that word. Lord, may you comfort us where we need comfort. May you rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. Lord, may you work in our hearts in the way that we need to love you more and to love one another. We thank you, O God, and pray this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As we come to the, the book of uh, Jonah today, we, we know that it's that probably that portion of the prophetic literature of Scripture that is oftentimes we're, we're most negligent of. And part of that may be that preachers are not always so careful to preach from the prophets of God. And so oftentimes those portions of Scripture are most unfamiliar to us. And, and even as we look at the prophetic books, it's a lot of thus saith the Lord and a lot of judgment and even a lot of things that don't always make sense to us. We're not always familiar with uh, the circumstances of the prophets. Maybe some of the more common ones, like Isaiah, that we read at, at Christmas time, like we've done this year, as we look at the advent of Christ. But for the most part, when it comes to the prophets, they seem sort of strange, except for the book of Jonah. That's a book that seems to be uh, much more common to us, because it's not just a lot of pronouncements of the prophets, but instead it really is a, a narrative, a historical narrative of the life of Jonah and how he acts. It's much more like Elijah or Elisha in Second Kings that we read about. So even our kids in the congregation are familiar with the story of Jonah. It's the theme of a lot of vacation Bible schools and Sunday school curriculum and, and things like that. But the account of Jonah is more than just a story. And I like the, the sort of uh, Paul Tripp's comments on this opening chapter of Jonah. He, he cites this riddle, and I want you to listen carefully to this riddle. He says, it is rarely a matter of location. It is seldom a matter of situation. Most of the times when you do it, you're probably not conscious that you're doing it. What is it that he's talking about? Well, he goes on to to uh, describe it, to answer it this way. He said, I would like to ask you, is there a way perhaps this week where you ran from God? Maybe not by location. You didn't physically try to get away from God. Maybe not situation. He says, was there a time when you thought that your plan was better than God's plan? Your way better than God's way? Was there perhaps a moment where you denied the presence of God where you acted as if God were not there? Is there perhaps some place in your life where you yet run from God? Those are good questions for us to think about. And as we come to these opening verses of Jonah, we'll see 
uh, that, jo- that Jonah did this, that Jonah ran from God. And we'll look at not only his disobedience this morning, but also the consequences of his disobedience. And as one preacher said, this is a, a good word for, uh, for the church today to be sort of a warning for us. I know sometimes I, I hear Christians talk about something and they'll say, well, that was in the Bible. Almost like everything that's written in the Bible, we ought to sort of use as an example. Well, that's true, but it's sometimes an example of what we ought not to do. It is something that is to be there as a warning for us as well. And that's what we see here as we come to Jonah. So let's look at verse 2 of Jonah. After it opens up sort of introducing Jonah, then the word of God comes to Jonah and it's very clear in verse 2. God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now it's very clear that God is commanding Jonah to go and to preach to these Ninevites. And we don't know a lot about Jonah, but one thing that we do know is is that he is a man with a proven track record in ministry. He is a prophet of the Lord, and he has spoken on behalf uh, in the name of the Lord, or he has spoken the word of the Lord uh, to God's people. In 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, verse 25, in that whole section, King Jeroboam was uh, an evil king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, the Lord sent a word to Jeroboam through the prophet Jonah to say that God would allow Israel to expand their territory, to have sort of a, a season of peace, and that, that God would do this. And so God sends Jonah to Jeroboam to tell him this. So this is a, a man who is used to speaking the truth in power and even preaching the word of God to wayward kings like Jeroboam, kings that were really, while they ruled over the nation of Israel and God's people, were godless nonetheless. But this mission that God gives to Jonah is very different. Jonah's call is unique from really any other prophet that we read in the Old Testament. Now, most prophets are called to prophesy to God's people. That's one way that Jonah's call is very different. He was called to go to the pagans. But even some who are called to prophesy of other nations stayed in the land of Israel, and yet they prophesied against the nations from afar. But that's not what God is calling Jonah to do. He is calling Jonah to leave the safety and security of his own country to actually go to another land and to bring the message to the enemy of Israel. Now that that was a tough call because Nineveh was a very wicked city. The Assyrians were a very wicked people. And that's why the Lord is sending Jonah to to this capital of Assyria to come and to preach the gospel. And when God says that Nineveh is wicked, he means wicked. Now, uh, I I can't go into detail because we have kids in the room, okay, of, of how wicked they really were. But their brutality and the fact that they were bloodthirsty was well known. Um, I will just say, to let it suffice at this, that they decapitated their enemies. Now, that's not all that they did. But I don't want to give your kids nightmares. So we're, we're just going to leave it at that. But they were a very wicked people. And the Assyrians were enemies of Jonah and his people as well. This is probably written around the 8th century. It's sort of hard to tell. But that's right before the time when Assyria would come in and take over the northern kingdom and take them into captivity. 
And so we have to understand that this was a very difficult call for Jonah to get. Now, we might think that it would be difficult for Jonah because he might go and and preach to the Ninevites and they might reject his message. And we, you know, and, and we don't know what would happen to Jonah, almost as if Jonah might be afraid of what the Ninevites might do to him. But we get no indication whatsoever in this book that Jonah was afraid of the Ninevites. Uh, that's not at all the case. But let me suggest that there was a greater fear that Jonah had, and that is that he would go and he would preach the gospel to the Ninevites and that they might receive his message. That was more of his greater fear. We see that in chapter 4 and verse 2, where, uh, well, let me just even begin with verse 1. But it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And so he's angry with God because he sees God as too merciful that God is too much. And, and that's why uh, we see here is God says, arise and go to Nineveh. He's not just saying, OK, let's get up. Let's go, Jonah. There's a sense of urgency that is there in his message. And, and we see that as as we have read this opening verses of Jonah as Jonah gets on the ship that he's taking to get away from God. As he's down in the bottom of the ship, the captain comes and what does he say? Arise, call on your God. It's the same language that's used here that God gives to Jonah. And there's that sense of urgency that he needs to go because he knows that he needs to preach the gospel. And we, and as we uh, see in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah deduces from all this that God's intention in sending him to Nineveh was not just to pronounce judgment, but it was uh, that in preaching that there might be repentance and salvation and deliverance from judgment of these wicked Ninevites. Because you see, Jonah understands that preaching is God's appointed means of grace that even if he preaches judgment to Nineveh, that there might be repentance. And that's why he fled. Now, not only that, not only did he not want them to receive God's grace because they were enemies of Israel, but there's more to it than that. If you look back at 2 Kings 14, 24, just that verse before where Jonah uh, prophesied to Jeroboam, you'll read that King Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so it, it, was, it may and most likely was part of Jonah's thinking that Ninevite might repent of their sins. Okay? If he goes and he preaches to them. But at the same time, God's people, God's covenant people were wondering headlong into apostasy. Even though Jonah had been preaching to this northern kingdom and calling them to repent, they had refused to do so. And so you could just almost understand that, that Jonah was thinking, if I go and I preach to the Ninevites, they may repent of their sin, and then God may use that nation as judgment upon his own people, Israel, which is what God did. 
And, and Jonah did not want to do that. And so we read in verse 3 that Jonah rebels against God. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Oftentimes, as I said, whether it's veggie tales, whether it's a vacation Bible school, you know, oftentimes the story of Jonah is sort of portrayed as this cutesy little story. But that's not the reality of this account at all. This is really a story about a man who was called by God to a particular task. And yet this man had the audacity to look at God and says, no. I will not do it. I will not declare your word. I will not fulfill my ordained obligation. Jonah is the only prophet to defy God. Other prophets wrestled with God and they struggled with his commands or they questioned God's call. But Jonah is the only one that rebelled against the Lord. And so what we have here today is really a picture of what it looks like when a person sort of backslides before the Lord, when a person who professes to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet uh, is one who is hardening his heart, what such a life looks like. And it's a good warning for us. You know, even as you look at Jonah, sort of the trajectory of Jonah's path in these opening verses, uh, you see here this Hebrew word being over and over and over used to describe Jonah's actions. Look at what it says. Jonah went down to Joppa. Literally, he went down into the ship in verse 3. And then in verse 5, it says he went down into the inner part of the ship and, and fell asleep. And so you sort of see the sense of Jonah going down and down and down and down. Here's a man who's sort of spiraling downward from faithfulness and usefulness into bitterness and self-deception. A self-deception of an unwilling and a disobedient heart. And so we must take to heart these things that Jonah was doing because they can characterize our lives as well if we're not careful. And so we see, first of all, Jonah directly defying or disobeying the word of the Lord. And as a result of that, he, he runs from the Lord. You may have heard it said that God's word will keep us from sin or sin will keep us from God's word. And that's very true. You know, God's word, it seems like if we give ourselves to hearing the word of the Lord and we, we read that word and we trust in God's word, there's a sense in which there's a strengthening that's done in our hearts, which helps us to resist sin. But there's another sense in which if we give ourselves to sin, then we oftentimes don't desire God's word. We find ourselves sort of pushing it away, not necessarily caring so much to listen to that. And that's sort of the example that we see here with Jonah, that he doesn't listen to the word of the Lord. That God comes to him and says, I want you to go east and north just a little bit, about 500 miles, which is about a three-month trip. And I want you to go and I want you to preach to these people and tell them that I'm going to bring my judgment upon them. And so what... What does Jonah do? Instead of going north and then east a little bit, he goes south and west a little bit to Joppa where he finds a boat and then he's going to take that boat to Tarshish. Now, nobody knows exactly where Tarshish was at the time. Many believe that it was probably a southern part of Spain. Others believe that maybe it was one of the islands. But 
it was uh, uh, sort of the ends of the earth in essence. It was as far away as Jonah could get from Israel and as far away from what God was doing. So it was probably about a thousand miles away at least, if not further. And so it was about a, a one year trip and it would have been a very costly trip. And so Jonah goes the opposite direction. He flees from the Lord. Now, that's sort of silly when you think about it. This morning, we sang Psalm 139, or at least a portion of it. And, and in that psalm, it speaks about how you cannot run away from the presence of the Lord. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 8 through 10. It says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that's even the sea between Joppa and Tarshish, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's nothing more futile than seeking to run away from God. There is nowhere that we can go. And yet oftentimes, is that not our, our hearts when we begin to start that pattern of willful disobedience against the Lord. As we begin to, to not listen to the Lord, then we find ourselves running more and more away from the Lord. That's the pattern that we see with Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned against God, what did they do? They hid from him. They hid from him. And so likewise, even we oftentimes will seek to, to run away from the Lord. But then even as we're running away from the Lord, there is a sense in which we belittle God as well. That our view of God changes as we are running away from him. Uh, and that's what we see here in Jonah. He attempts to flee from the presence of the Lord. We see that, that term, presence of the Lord, or that phrase, presence of the Lord, used twice in verse 3 and once in verse 10. Because that was really what the desire, that was really the bottom line, the real problem that Jonah had. That he wanted to be out from under the gaze of God. That he no longer wanted to live his life quorum Deo before the face of God. Instead, he wanted to live his life the way that he wanted to live. And I know that being a pastor for all the years that I have, I have met those who have abandoned the faith, who have walked away from the Christian gospel. Even sometimes those ministers of the gospel who stood right where I am and proclaimed the same gospel that I'm proclaiming, I have watched them walked away from the faith, maybe even uh, leaving their families and leaving the ministry and turning away from the Lord. And it's a very sad thing to see. And sometimes it seems like these people are walking with the Lord and they love the Lord. And all of a sudden they just turn. And it's just like you're, you almost feel like you get whiplash because they have turned away from the Lord so quickly. But yet invariably, as you look behind the scenes, you find that it wasn't really such a quick decision that oftentimes there were patterns of sin. There's a pattern of turning, of walking away from the Lord just a little bit at a time. You know, and, but it was done sort of in secret. It was done sort of behind the scenes where nobody ever noticed. And so it was gone unchecked. And I know uh, for me, one of the, the drums that I have beaten since we have begun as a mission church is for us to know one another, for us to be in each other's lives. And part of my desire 
is for me as your shepherd is to know you, but it's also for you guys to know one another so that those secret places in our lives aren't as easy to keep. Where those secret places are, are not left unexamined, but where we have others who are walking alongside us, others who are praying for us. You know, even if you can't get into the lives of each other as much as you would like to, as you get down on your knees and you pray through the names of the people in our church in the bulletin each week and you are praying for them, pray that God would guard their hearts. Pray that there would be no secret places for their sin. Pray that the Holy Spirit would bring about conviction and would work in the hearts of each other that we might love one another and that we would not be Jonas that would walk away from the Lord. Because if we prefer sin, if we opt out for sin, we cannot retain belief in God as He is. We have to somehow, if we're going to have sin in our lives and we're going to have God in our lives, that sin takes up more and more space. And so what we have to do is we have to remake God in our image. We have to, to change our view of God and our perspective of God and, and make him smaller and smaller and smaller so that there might be room for the sin in our lives. Whenever you see someone jettison biblical doctrine, the real issue very often isn't really theological or even intellectual. It's moral. It's a sense of us rebelling against the Lord our God. And often, as we scale back our view of God, it leads to a misinterpretation even of providence, of God's works in our lives, that we then use God's providence to justify our sin. You notice that Jonah went down to Joppa and lo and behold, there just happened to be a ship that was going to the very place that he wanted to head and that was Tarshish. And then, you know, he just happened to have the money that he could pay to get on that ship to go and to run away from the Lord. And I just think about the different times that people um, misinterpret God's providence, his, his uh, circumstances that he places in our lives. We misinterpret those to justify our sin rather than obeying the Lord. I mean, how many times have you heard of someone who got a divorce and unlawfully got a divorce against someone, and then they say, oh, but pastor, the Lord has brought this wonderful woman into my life, or this, the Lord has brought this wonderful man into my life. And so it has to be from the hand of the Lord. God is leading me this way. And so therefore, I should marry this person. And it directly defies the word of God and yet they use the circumstances to justify or you know Lord I'm getting offered this this great promotion and I'm going to move to this part of the country well yeah I know there's no real good Bible believing churches and I know there's really no place for my family to go to church but I know this is of the Lord because these circumstances were dropped in my lap you know, the problem is, it's not signs that we need, it is scripture that we need. And so in those times, we need to be very careful and we need to understand that even if we might be struggling or if those that we know might be struggling with sin, that they're going to try to use the circumstances of, in their lives to try to justify their sin. But we must not be deceived. You know, what Jonah didn't understand was is that there was uh, indeed kind providences from the hand of God as he was getting on that ship and as he was going to Tarsus. But it wasn't 
that God was justifying his sin. It was that God was going to let him get on that ship that God instead might draw him back to himself, that God would use those circumstances. And sometimes he will allow us to even progress in our sin and even be deceived in terms of our understanding of God's works of providence. But what he'll do is he'll hand us over for a season to our own wayward hearts, not to indulge us and not to affirm our disobedience, never to justify our actions, but sometimes to bring us to the end of ourselves, to show us the emptiness and the utter bankruptcy of the choices that we have made, to make our hearts ache like the prodigal son in the pigsty who came to himself, to make our hearts ache and long for home, to be at our Father's table once again. That is the purpose that that plays. So not only is there a sense of those that have shunned the word of the Lord, that there is a desire to run from them, a sense to belittle the, the, uh, the character of God and to use the circumstances in their life to justify uh, their sin. But there oftentimes also is a seared conscience that comes along with that. And so Jonah gets on board of the ship and, he, and, and soon a great storm comes. And the seamen are, are doing all they can to save the ship. But where's Jonah? Kids, where's Jonah? Is he not in the in down below deck in the ship? And what's he doing? He's asleep. He's asleep. He's not hail, helping bail out the water. He's not helping throw the cargo over sea. Here's a quiet conscience if you ever saw one. But it's not the quiet conscience of a clear conscience. Instead, it is the silence of a seared and battered and broken conscience. A conscience that no longer protests and no longer fights against God. Here, I think, for me at least, is the most alarming part of Jonah's story. The most terrifying warning in part of Scripture. And that is when we persist in, in disobedience and in, in disobeying the voice of of our conscience, which first protest against the sin that we then do, it becomes quieter and quieter and quieter until in the end, our conscience is silent against our rebellion against God. You know, my, my wife would say to our kids that whenever they did something wrong and they got caught, and there were some of our kids, it just seemed like that always happened. They couldn't get away with anything. They would always get caught. She would say, son or daughter, that is God's grace to you. It is God's grace to you that you got caught, that you might turn away from that sin and you might turn back to him. The worst thing that God could do is let you get away with your sin. To let your conscience grow harder and harder and harder until you no longer hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. Not only is there a, a, a seared conscience, but there's also a marred witness as well. And then uh, we, we see what happens to Jonah's witness. When the lot falls to Jonah, what does he say? He says that I am a Hebrew. This is in verse 9. He said, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. But notice... 
that, you know, what the sailors reaction, you know, they, they see this storm and they're trying to do everything to stop. And Jonah says, just throw me overboard. And they're like, we're not going to throw you overboard. And they continue to fight the storm and do everything they can. And it's interesting at this point of the story, we find ourselves rather admired, admiring these pagan sailors, you know, who worked so hard to do everything they could to save the ship and to get Jonah safely to land. And yet at this point in time, as far as Jonah's concerned, he loses all credibility. We find it hard to respect him very much because he's a man who professes with his lips that he's a follower of God and yet his actions show quite the contrary. It's interesting how... We will belittle God to make room for our sin, that we will justify our actions and misread God's providence, that our conscience increasingly will become seared and battered by disobedience and will be quelled and eventually silenced, that we are no longer alarmed by the the promptings of the Holy Spirit as we continue to rebel against God, but also we see that it ruins our witness with others. There's a, a solemn and I think a, a frightening warning here for us as Christians as we watch the conscience of disobedience unfold in Jonah's life that we must beware of backsliding. Now for most of us, we need to understand that such backsliding doesn't just happen. It is something that happens slowly over time. And you may say, Pastor Rick, yeah, this is a good warning and there are probably those that need to hear it. But brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to examine your hearts today and to see where you are with the Lord. Is your heart tender towards God and his word? Do you desire to to be in his word and to know him and to listen to him? Are you willing to lay aside even the things that you desire to do, even the things that you think make the most sense and to do the will of the Lord instead? Or are you one that's like Jonah, that you know what's right and you know how things ought to work out and you are going to obey God as long as it obeys with your will as well? Well, as we come to the close of this passage today, I want us to really, uh, really turn away from Jonah just for a second and his story. In one sense, it's sort of a very sad story, but I want us to look at him who describes himself as greater than Jonah in the New Testament, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us, as we close, to sort of contrast the calling of Jonah with the calling of Christ, that Jesus has a commission of God as well, much like Jonah did. And in the same way that Jonah was commanded of God to go out of the precincts of Israel to preach to the wicked and rebellious sinner, so Jesus Christ was called of God and given a commission that was never given to anyone else before, and that was to leave the blessedness of heaven, to be humiliated, to become as a man, to suffer and to die on a cross, and to become a curse in our place. The Son whom the Father loved more than anything is commissioned by the Father himself to bear the weight of God's wrath that we, like the Ninevites, might be forgiven and to have our sins taken away and to deal with the rebelliousness of our hearts. You know, and like Jonah, in one sense, 
Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wrestles with that commission. He wrestles with that command that the Father gives to him. He knows that what's coming up is he must drink the cup of God's wrath. And so what does Jesus do? He cries out and he says, Oh, Father, if you would, would you take this cup from me? But unlike Jonah, Jesus says, Not my will, but your will be done. Then that's the contrast between Jesus and Jonah. And brothers and sisters, we are Jonah. We are rebellious and disobedient. We may have even been used of God in mighty ways like Jonah had been in the past. And yet our, our hearts are prone to sin. I've been reading through the Bible in a year. And uh, I was reading through Genesis and just read where the flood occurred and and uh, everybody was wiped out except Noah and his family. And then Noah comes out of the boat. And what happens to, to Noah? He gets drunk. His uh, son sees him naked. His other sons uh, get angry with that son. And they actually come and they cover their father. And, and they see him. And what we see is, even though God wiped out humanity, sin has not stopped. And as described in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What is to such people that the one who is greater than Jonah comes to save us? So we as a people come as a people with great hope that even to know that we are like Jonah, that we have a Savior who loves us. We have a Savior who comes and forgives us. We have a Savior who comes and calls to us to come to him. That if there are those things in our hearts where we are harboring sin, those places that we are hanging on to, our Savior says, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Let's bow our heads and have a moment of silence as we meditate upon the word that was preached this morning. Lord, we know as we come this day, we know the struggles of our hearts, God. We know the sins that we have committed this week. We know the ways, Lord, that we have thought that we have known better than you have. And God, we see that. We, we see in our lives that inclination towards the wickedness of our hearts. And we come to you this day, Lord, and we not only confess our sins and ask for your forgiveness, but we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. To, to change our hearts, to, to love you more fully. Lord, I pray that if there be anyone in our congregation who is in danger of such rebellion as, as Jonah, Lord, that, that who's, who has fostered this disobedience and this rebellion for a period of time and is, is down, going down that path and maybe even to that place where they're sort of denying their rebellion against you. They feel justified through their circumstances that, God, you would show your grace to them and that you would draw them ever back to you to know you and to love you. Oh, Lord, we just thank you and pray that we would understand the grace that we have received, that we would not be uh, slow to go and to tell others about the grace that we have received to be reminded, Lord, that we are here because of you, not because we are great. We thank you, O Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.